0: Hi, Mike Gibson, Carolyn Lance, and we're talking about changes to the ESC guidelines that incorporate a lot of emerging data about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, Carolyn, there were a lot of changes uh, to the guidelines. Give us an overview, but then drill down a lot on the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction changes.
1: Yeah, well, Mike, first of all, I love that we're talking about heart success because, boy... Is it a year in time yeah. to talk about heart success? And I wish I could say that the guidelines had changed a lot with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. That is actually the one part of the heart failure guidelines that didn't change. And it was more the rest of it that, that really, really took strides forward. So, um,
0: but after this meeting, I think we can expect to see a lot of
1: changes. Exactly, exactly. So I was really privileged to be part of the task force this time. And um, what was very significant, obviously, was introduction of new drugs for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Here you go. You know, we've got, we thought we just recovered from the ARNIs. And here now we have totally new medications in dapagliflozin and empagliflozin, more or less the evidence-based SGLT2 inhibitors for HEFREF, and then another new uh, medication that was introduced for the first time was Verisigwut, the soluble guanolate cyclase stimulator. That received the class two, whereas dapagliflozin and empagliflozin received class one recommendations. But what I really love about the guidelines is that it tried to be very practical and offer a simplified approach. So gone was the layering upon layer that happened in all the past guidelines, which is the new drugs just get tucked under the ACE inhibitor and beta blocker and MRA and tucked and tucked and tucked. This time it got flattened out. And so we have the four class one recommendations for HEPREF, which are ACE or RNA, beta blocker, MRA and SGLT2 inhibitor. And they were just put in a row like that in a nice green box. <laughs> so that's really, really nice because now it sort of frees everyone to say, let's just get everybody on effective disease modifying medications who should be on it. And it doesn't really dictate how you get there. Mm-hmm. So it allows some kind of, you know, flexibility. And in fact, there was an entirely new figure on a phenotype approach, which I think Think is where the field is going. An individualized approach, depending on what are the comorbidities or indications any particular patient has for this medication versus another. I mean, it makes sense. Now, so I, really like
0: I got to tell you, I'm a little nervous about starting all those drugs at once. Um, I feel a lot more comfortable doing it in the hospital. What's the Carolyn Lamb approach to initiating these drugs?
1: So the Carolyn Lamb approach is to keep it simple. And it's so much easier to see a patient with Hefref. And no, my aim is to get all four on at the end. No, I'm I'm not going to start all four in someone who's naive and who may, whose blood pressure and heart rate may be unstable. And so on. of course not. So we're talking about someone who is decongested already. Hemodynamically okay, and 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 uh, you know, a pre-discharge patient would be someone uh, uh, like that. Tell and me what that's a patient. Hemodynamically
0: okay. Does does a wedge pressure have to be you know below eighteen or what? Hemodynamically okay
1: No, okay? what I mean is not someone in cardiogenic shock or pre-shock or whose heart rate is like. Fifty, you know, like it, yeah, okay. it, we have to be logical here. So it's someone who has some blood pressure space, has heart rate space, has been decongested, because if not, you don't give beta blockers in an acutely decongested right. unstable right. patient, for example. Well, that's but what
0: it you know. If people just do this without being thoughtful, that that kind of that concerns me. So can't be congested, got to be stable. Okay.
1: Yeah. No and and in those cases. I would rather have little doses of more than one class than to sacrifice any blood pressure space or heart rate space with a very, very high dose of a single class. That's kind of the concept, you see. So if there's a very high blood pressure, oh, this patient would be ideal to maybe start the ARNI, and a beta blocker at the same time, perhaps. You know, um, if the patient is diabetic and already on an SGLT2 inhibitor, I would continue it. You see what I mean by there's a logical sort of depending who the patient is in front of you. And and that's what I like about the guidelines. It allows you to do that. And then after all of that is done in that basic four, then comes the sort of, if you're African-American consider hydralazine and nitrates. If the blood, uh, if the heart rate, you know, is still very high despite beta blockers and their sinus rhythm, consider ivabradine, and so on. If this is worsening heart failure despite guideline-directed medical therapies, consider vericiguat. Um, the, vi- the devices, you know, flow the same way, so that's very nice. Yeah, so that's for Hef-Ref.
0: So get of get course. More on it at a starting dose and then start to titrate or uh, tailor their therapy based upon what room you have to move on blood pressure and pulse.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And renal function and potassium. So those are the main things that usually dictate how fast you can go and how high one can go.
0: And then on the Um, left side, talk to us about, you know, you guys are still trying to get all your names down. You know, it was... Uh, now it's... Uh,
1: oh, gosh. Talking to an interventionist. What did you just call it, by the way? Heart failure, heart failure, Mr. Ejection? Depression?
0: Well, I'm not going to say heart failure, Mr. EF. You know, <laughs> Mr. EF, you know? but So it's hef, path hef, hef, ref, hef, Mr. EF. But I...
1: All right, all right. I'm so,
0: mef. I'm going with hef, mef.
1: Ref, all right. <laughs> so the, the MR, the Mr., used to stand for mid-range ejection right. fraction. In and you
0: kind. of pushed that for a long time. And now it's good to see the community is really accepting that kind of term.
1: Yeah. So now, though, the name has the M and R now stand for mildly reduced. Okay. And that's because of accumulating evidence that these patients respond to neurohormonal blockade, for example, similarly to those with more reduced ejection fraction. And so having that reduced in the name is supposed to trigger clinicians to give the patients a benefit of the doubt, you know, with, with therapies that could help them. And I, w- I want to say, I mean, the Arnies are a typical example and your work with the FDA, looking at data from Paradigm and Paragon was, was very influential in, in advancing the field that way. The the approval for the FDA, by the way, very interestingly was for adults with chronic heart failure, particularly those with a less than normal ejection fraction. So I have to tell you behind the scenes, there was a lot of discussion on whether or not we should change the name of the higher ejection fraction heart failure into heart failure with normal ejection fraction. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm surprised you're not rolling your eyes and and, (laughs) sort of teasing us. What are you doing?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, but preserved uh, seems to be a good compromise. But what is preserved and what's Mr. EF? I mean, (laughs) how do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? All right.
1: So Mr. EF is above 40 but less than 50. So 41 to 49. And preserved we conservatively stuck to the old definition, which is 50% and above for the ejection fraction. But by the way, in all these different heart failure, remember we're talking about heart failure. So the clinical syndrome has to be present. And I and I oh. think sometimes we just lose the force for the trees. Heart
0: failure is more than a number. You know, if there's a patient attached to that number, and you're treating the patient, not the number, right?
1: <laughs> well put. Well put. Yeah. And so for have pef. The guidelines were published at the same time as emerging evidence, and I think we will talk about that soon, because at the ESC, we had, for the first time, a robustly positive outcomes trial in heart failure with ejection fraction above 40%, so
0: that's super cool. Yes, that was amazing. And um, any changes though uh, other than the nomenclature in the management of HefPEF and the guidelines that we need to know about?
1: Yeah, so in the process, I think suppose.
0: The Arnies, right? I mean oh yes. Yeah. yes,
1: the ARNIs got elevated. And then in devices, um, something that was really talked about was how ICDs, in non-ischemic uh, ref became a 2A from a class one, and that's based on the Danish data. So um, interesting, uh, uh, something that was um, brought down in, in a recommendation. And I think too, something very important was an emphasis on pre-discharge optimization of therapy. Uh, and, and that's a very important, Important one because we should start seeing hospitalization for heart failure not just as a time to tune up diuretics, but really as an indication that this patient is is worsening, and that's the time to really optimize guideline directed medical therapies and to push on um, disease-modifying medications, add what you can, optimize it, before the patient is discharged. And that was very nice to see that.
0: Yes. Well, Carolyn, thanks for that update. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us here uh, live from the ESC 2021.